Hello and welcome to the Nyler 9 podcast. This week's episode is a special all about Aphex Twins. It's this people called Aphex Twins. That's right. This week's episode, along with myself, is, of course, Andrea Cleary. Hello. Hi, Andrea. <laughs> Hello. I Are don't you know excited why. to talk about the Aphex twin? Aphex? I'm excited to learn. Yeah. Um, I'll say off the up top, I like Aphex twin. I own a couple of his records. I enjoy his music videos. I do not know. I, I'd say what what I know about Aphex Twin, you could fit in a matchbox. So I'm also excited to learn, but I will contribute a bit more than, you know, yeah. the, Italo, the Italo disco. Yeah, episode. you've got some stuff to talk about later on. I have opinions to do more than facts. Aphex so. Twin. Yeah, we're going to talk about the godfather of IDM. What is IDM? We'll talk about that. The Mozart of Ambient. Ooh. And the mischievous, enigmatic producer who I once shook hands with. Okay, the reason we're talking about Aphex Twin, Richard D. James, is because he's turning 52 this Friday. He was born in August, August 18th, 1971, in Limerick, as we all know, because anyone who's Irish and into music will know that we claim Aphex Twin as our own, um, even though he probably wouldn't even uh, notice or bat an eyelid about that. Uh, I think he lives in Scotland at the moment. He, he grew up in Cornwall. We were going to talk about the music that he makes, um, why it's so interesting, why it's become such a, he's considered kind of a visionary producer. And I think uh, a lot through the telling of this, his story, I think we learn a lot about why um, he is one of the most idiosyncratic producers uh, around and has been since he started releasing music in 1992. Um to accompany this Aphex Twin special, I have three Spotify playlists that I'm going to share with Patreon listeners. Um, so if you're a Patreon listener, I will share uh, three different uh, strands of Aphex Twin's music that I would say, uh, on a broad church, define it. So he has very much the, I'll get into this a bit later on, but there's an ambient play kind of strand of music he has, obviously, uh, the more electronic and experimental stuff, and then the more uh, dance music, which is probably more the early stuff. So we get into a lot about that. Um, uh, we're going to talk about his back catalogue and all of that stuff as well. So uh, he was fascinated with sound from an early age, uh, more more so than music itself. He started messing around with the family piano in Cornwall, conducting experiments uh, that uh, uncannily parallel the prepared piano techniques devised by John Cage and other 20th century composers. He said, uh, he told Melody Maker in 1993, I used to play with the piano, do things with the strings inside rather than play tunes on the keyboard. A bit later, when I was nine or 10, I bought loads of tapes and tapes recorders, anything I could get next for nothing. I bought a synth when I was 12 and I thought it was a load of shit. So I took it apart and started pissing about with it. I got really into making things with electronics. I learned about it in school until I was quite competent and I could build my own circuits from scratch. 
Started off modifying analog synths and junk that I bought and got addicted to making noises. When I got my first sampler, I wrote software on the computer to make it run better. I remember when I got my first keyboard, it cost me 60 quid, which was a lot of money to a kid. And I literally opened it up the first day I got it. I learned the keyboard inside out and then I started customizing it. I got bored with the sounds after the first few times. So I opened up and tried to get something different. <laughs> uh, he was making music by the age of 14. Absolutely. If not sooner, there are possibly tracks on uh, his first big uh well, because of the title, Selected Ambient Works 1985 to 1992, suggests that he started making his music when he was 14. Uh, he also said what he found at the age of 12, he called Squidge Tracks, a sound close to acid. This was only in 1983 in a preteen bedroom in Cornwall. By 1987, when he was 16, Acid appeared and he started DJing within a small but solid local scene. After matching rhythms and sounds by sampling, mixing, wasn't that difficult when I DJ and I started to mix my own stuff in, but never used to tell anyone. No one noticed until they came up to the decks to see what was this strange music was. Then they saw that the decks were empty and the stuff was on a tape. <laughs> <laughs> so he did a lot of that. Uh, apparently he had a job as a ditch digger. Um, so that's, that's something he did in 1991 at the age of 20. When he moved to London, his first recording was released and it was called Analog Bubble Bath. So that was the first uh, proper release from Aphex Twin. It was Analog Bubble Bath. Actually, a song that was made with a friend of his called Tom Middleton. Uh, and they released that under the name Aphex, which later became Aphex Twin. I say we have some cat mischief going on there. Yeah, geez. she wants to say hello to all the listeners, don't <laughs> you? If you hear purring yeah. down the mic, that's what that is. Uh, yeah, Tom Middleton actually went on to make a lot of music himself um, under his own name and along with Mark Pritchard. But in the early days, um, they collaborated under uh, global communication. But yeah, Richard D. James played, uh, made Analog Bubble Bath with him. In the early days of his work, I think a lot of the music that you hear, it's some of my favorite Aphex Twin music and the kind of overarching theme of it is it, it's very much like it has a lot of four or four beats in it it's quite like standardized compared to some of his later stuff but it also had the dna of like the more out there stuff that he made first of all he got released on a belgian label called rns records which is still around uh, to this day a uh, very well-known electronic label and um so one of the songs that features on one of those early releases is a song called Didgeridoo. And uh, he decided to make this song, which is this 156 BPM uh, track, uh, because one of the clubs, he says, we used to do had this problem in that we had to shut at 2 a.m., but the atmosphere was so mad that no one wanted to go. So I decided to make music that was so mad that it would blow their minds and to be ready to leave. And that song was called Didgeridoo. Thank you. 
You can hear there, there's a lot of um, kind of the tropes of dance music in there and the way that things are panned and filtered and stuff like that. Um, he was using the techniques of dance music of the time uh, in a kind of insulting way. Um, so that's what he did sometimes. But he also had, even in the very early days, he had a very obvious uh, ability to create lovely melodies, even when they were intertwined with kind of these arpeggios and stuff like polynomial C. It's a funny one that because it's kind of you it, you feel like it's very much acid, but you can hear in the background these kind of like stirring strings that were very much evident um, around that time when he was making music. And I think he always had that uh, love in him of uh, strings, but he he did it in a way that like never like there's some of the more ambient stuff that we'll talk about in a second will feature some of that. But yeah, the first big release was Selected Ambient Works, eighty five to ninety two. So yeah, he was fourteen years old when he started making that. So it is became quite a legendary album as well. It's his debut album, Selected Ambient Works. Even the title that of that suggests a composer as opposed to mm. a producer because he's it could have been selected ambient tracks. It's selected ambient works because that's the way he saw himself as well, I'd say. Um so let's take a track from the opening track, one of the one of my favorites from uh, Selected Ambient Works, which is I think is probably up there as one of my favorite albums. And it's less the second Selected Ambient Works Volume 2 is more ambient in tone, but this one has a lot of kind of beats on it as well. So here's Extal. It was not all um, as ambient as uh, some of the titles suggest. There was tracks on there like Green Calyx, which have a bit more going on. That kind of acid uh, techno vibe that he had was something that was is is being throughout his entire career, and it, it, like he called it at the age of twelve, squidge tracks. It does kind of have that vibe to it. It's very squidgy. It's acid. Acid is very squelchy, and that is something that was there throughout his whole life. Uh, in between Select Ambient Works Volume One and Volume Two, which was released in 1994, he released one of his uh, early side projects uh, called Polygon Window. Surfing on Sine Waves, uh, which was released in 1993, uh, very much a, a 
kind of similar lines of of this stuff somewhere in between kind of like electronic dance floor workouts very weird acid um it's wouldn't be one of my favorites but that's a lot of people a lot of apex fans love it and the reason that apex fans are really there's a lot of super fans out there for apex twin and he Mm -hmm. was probably the first artist which uh courted by accident or design a very like intense online community so he had the first stands really in, in online music as far as i'm concerned there's a website called we are the music makers that's been up there for years there was apex twin websites that have been active for many many years because they all poured over like the meaning and intent and the symbology uh, that uh, famous apex twin logo that he has the a is something that he started using uh, in 1992 and i think it's been there throughout his entire career used and morphed in different ways so we'll talk a little bit more about the myths of his music later on because there's plenty of them. but i think selected ambient works volume two for many people would be considered a an ambient uh, music classic it has a lot of music on it it has there are 24 tracks on that all numbered just no title track necessarily so let's take a song this is the opening track actually from uh, select number works on two. I think Select Ambient Works uh, Volume 2 is really the only very Beatless uh, album that he made. This is uh, number three on that. Clearly had a gift for making uh, beautiful melodies as well throughout his entire career. So that is a fine example of it. Selected Ambient Works Volume 2. Surprisingly, in the later years uh, when Warp launched uh, Apex Twin's online store, uh, Richard D. James uh, shared a number of uh, things about that album that were released. Uh, Blue Calyx was the last track ever recorded in the bedroom studio in his parents' house. Uh, the voices on number 22 turn out to be a murderer's, murderer's taped confession that he says he got off a friend who worked, who swept and uh, cleaned up uh, a police uh, station. <laughs> I mean, again, he did. You can take this stuff with a grain of salt because he said a lot of these things over the years. Those are the kind of trivia or arcana that like Apex Twin fans absolutely adore. And uh, those kind of things are things that people didn't know before. So it only came out in 2017. Uh, but yeah, people pour over these kind of factoids about uh, mm. his music. But Selected Ambient Works Volume 2, certainly his most ambient, most Brian Eno-esque um, album. Uh, he apparently uh, used, he, this is another thing he says, he used the technique of lucid dreaming uh, to make these songs, he says. Uh, lucid dreaming is the act of being aware and or controlling your dreams, and it's a technique he says is responsible for 80% of the tracks on Selected Ambient Works. Volume 2, uh, there is a lot to, I mean, you could imagine this to be true, but it doesn't mean it necessarily is. You ever uh, had a lucid is, dream now? No, don't think so. <laughs> don't think so. It's the have you? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah, they usually don't last very long once you become lucid, but immediately yeah. you're like, 
quick fly. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, of course. No, I have that those bits. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're like aware yeah. you're in a dream. Yeah, yeah. You can apparently train yeah. yourself to do it if you when you wake up. If you have to learn to train yourself to remember your dreams first, and then if you keep right. like if you wake up and write down your dream as soon as it happens, that's a way of training it. I don't know. I never tried to train right. it, but um, okay, they are real. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I get it. But uh, he says, um, this is going to sound really weird, but well, I'm a lucid dreamer. I can control my dreams. I make tracks in my dreams. Sometimes I'm in my own studio, sometimes in an imaginary studio, sometimes my real studio, but with imaginary equipment. It used to be a real struggle to remember the tunes when I woke up, but I'm training myself to do it. I reckon I get about 70% of my stuff that way now. That was when he said about that album, Select Nine Before Swan 2. Uh, he said he realized he had the ability when he was about seven and it took about six months of practice to actually start remembering melodies. Uh, he has mentioned that technique uh, a number of times in interviews. So unclear whether it's a myth or not, but anyway, it is sounds like the kind of thing that he may have done because mm. that's the kind of person he was. Um, so yeah, like as I said, there's basically three main strands of Aphex Twins music. There's the ambient stuff, which you know broadly is electroacoustic. It's compositional, it's beatless. It features pianos, um, a minimal production, and some bass. There's the kind of early work, which is uh, the dance elements of his music. In his later years, he would move more towards the experimental stuff as opposed to purely dance. But I, I love the early uh, dance records that he made because there's a lot of, well, they use 404 beats and there's not a lot of 404 beats on his, on his later stuff. But it means that, you know, working within the confines of that, those limits means that he made some really interesting dance music that still is like unsurpassed really at this point. There is an album called Classics. Uh, that they, really, they released in 1995 featuring Didgeridoo and Polynomial C and all this kind of stuff here and Analog Bubble Bath. Here's one of the tracks from it called We Have Arrived. It's basically just a clanking and this, this kind of shows you... No, I hate that. Yeah, yeah, it's not his best. Uh, it's, but he, he did a lot of that stuff. That's basically um, heavy techno taken to an industrial level. So a lot of his experimental, we've got the ambient side, we've got the dance side and the experimental and the experimental would largely draw on his acid love, his love of acid, drill and bass, the abrasive electro and the term IDM, which we'll get to mm. shortly after the release of classics. Um, you know, he's, he starts to really combine in the nineties, he combines the experimental and dance flavors more readily. So that hence is the name intelligent dance music, IDM that was really used by and I remember this at the time, it was very much an American concept. And it's funny mm. because now we have EDM, which is very much an American concept. So IDM was an American term for. Did the music IDM that come were before EDM? Yeah, the yeah, term, yeah. Um, I remember it being used in the 90s by Americans mm. generally. And that's what it's they called awful, like awful the likes of. Phrase. Yeah. The likes of Aphex Twin, Square Pusher, uh, The Orb, Orbital, all that kind of stuff. I've heard it with Boards of Canada before. Boards people, of Canada, People calling yeah. my beloved Boards of Canada IDM, which I, which I hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible name. I think we... I think over here, this side of the pond, we probably more readily just called it dance music or electronic music. Yeah. Electronica was kind of what we called it, really, yeah. more than anything else. Uh, and that term is really something that hasn't really stuck around. But yeah, yeah. Uh, or Brain Dance is another one, which uh, is a, a title of a compilation, which we'll discuss shortly as well. Um, so around 1995, um, Richard D. James released uh, I Care Because You Do, the Apex Twin album. 
and the 1996 EP Girl Boy. And things started to change there for in terms of the production and the percussion. Uh, things started to change uh, towards the very skittering electronic bass tracks. These songs that were high BPM and kind of like impossible to dance to. Within all of that, there unless was a lot really of music. Unless you're really intelligent. Yeah, unless you're really intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> there was the Richard D. James album as well, which was released in 1996. So in those two years, there was uh, these collections of music. I'll play a bit from uh, the Richard D. James album Finger Bib. Here's a, here's a bit of that. I care because you do uh, from 1995 uh, features his iconic face, which we'll talk about as well. This is Alberto Balsam. Yes, named after shampoo. figuring out what the sounds would do uh, as they happen more as more precise and he had a track like come on you slags Uh, and around that time there was a couple of tracks that uh, would be very well known there was a music video for a song called donkey rhubarb featuring uh, apex twin faces uh, dressed up as teddy bears and it was kind of one of his more playful moments, but it was a song you could actually dance to if you were mad. I can dance to that. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can actually dance to that one. Uh, this is a song for, called Girl Boy, the title track of the EP. So pluck strings and uh, kind of jungle drill and bass, it was the uh, the vibe on that one. And I think, uh, as we alluded to, like he was a composer, uh, first and foremost, and also a sound designer as well. He was interested in sounds. Um, and I think his composer uh, has become much more obvious in the period. Uh, uh, later on, in 2005, there was an album release called Acoustica, Alarm Will Sound Performs Aphex Twin, which basically takes the music of Aphex Twin and made it... Uh, uh, have us an orchestra playing it. So this is uh, the f- track four, which I played to start the show and how it's played by an orchestra.
apart from the drums, everything is very much like in a in a very clear classical vein. And uh, I bet the percussionists how... in the orchestra were like, "Yes, yeah, here we get go." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So most of his music was instrumental. His titles were all those kind of things that were very interesting in the early days, like kind of jokes, like come on you slags and, and whatever uh, finger bib to cure a weakling child he had all these weird titles but he also had a um, sigma almost of like how he called things a lot of calyx comes up a lot uh, strange um, words put together like a next heap with uh, cow cud as a twin that kind of stuff like it doesn't really make any sense but it became something that he did an awful lot and um we're kind of getting into, like he says, I don't really like words and music. He told uh, Select Magazine in 1995. It's too restricting. I don't like words in general because they mean something. Whereas electronic stuff, because it's so abstract, it doesn't have any meaning. You can interpret it in many ways. Um, and in terms of influences, when he's asked, he says, uh, well, I like Kraftwerk's weirder stuff. Wendy, Carlos, Terry Riley, Steve Reich. I probably like Steve Reich best. But this is the music I enjoy, not influences. I hate the idea of being influenced. The thought of putting bits of other people's music into my own makes me sick. So, and I think in well, fairness to him, other than taking... Sorry uh, to tell like, you. It, yeah. <laughs> he does the, like to obviously take jungle music and things like that. But I think mm-hmm. by and large, he has remained uh, kind of separate in, in many ways because he makes music unlike anyone else. And if anything... People have tried to copy him, but he's quite. It's quite difficult to copy. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the reasons that he is quite difficult to copy and he remains singular is because he says he uses his own scales. In an interview with uh, Philip Sh- uh, Sherborne in Pitchfork in 2014, he says, "I don't know when I did, but I've always liked these weird scales and tunings. It's been using. I've been using my own scales for quite a long time now, since Selected Ambience Works Volume Two. It's got." I, it's got some scales I made myself where I just made my own tuning basically and composed from that. I've got a weird balance problem as a human being, like I'm dizzy and it's something to do with that. I'll fall over sometimes, just walk into walls, things like that. Okay, Bella Swan. There's something wrong with my brain. It doesn't work properly. I can hear the same pitch in both ears, whereas for most people, if you listen to one pitch in one ear, it's slightly different in the other. That's how your brain works out direction. But mine's really close. I don't know what it is, something internal. Uh, and Pitchfork says, maybe that's your problem. Your pitch is too perfect. Maybe it is, but it always sounds more right to me when it's detuned. When it's right in tune, it's like it's something slightly off. But at the end of the day, it's all about frequencies and what they do. That's the real core. Forget all the equipment, forget the music. It's just literally frequencies and the effects on your brain. That's what everyone's essentially after. Um, so he says, yeah, it's all about the sound, but people forget that. They think, oh, I want to hear a nice tune. But what you're actually saying is you want to hear the combination of frequencies that make you feel a certain way. And more excitingly, it's about finding the new ones. A lot of composers before me have been on uh, this mission to change the world by getting off equal temperament. And I'm definitely one of those. So, Andrea, what is equal temperament? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Forgive me if I haven't done music theory in a while. Equal temperament is basically a way of organizing, for example, say like the piano keyboard into equal ratios of frequency between every note. So if you imagine um, like an octave on a piano from C to the next C up, say middle C or C4, up to the next C, which is C5, you've uh, a variety of notes. You've got white notes and black notes um, in, in between those two notes. The C4 and the C5, in terms of, the, uh, in terms of their frequencies, I don't remember what the, what the numbers are, but C5 is double the frequency of C4. So that's why when you play 
C's together in unison, uh, like an octave apart or two octaves apart. They sound like they belong together. There's a really nice um, harmonious sound between those two. You've got like you've got the distance in frequency between C4 and C5 and you've got 12 notes, white notes and black notes in between and the distance between every single one of those notes. So C and C sharp, C sharp and D is the exact same ratio as the next note beside it. So you divide the octave perfectly into 12. And then from that, you get your different um, scales and things like that, basically. And what is he talking about there, do you think, like in terms of like when he's talking avoiding that? I think when he's talking about getting outside of equal temperament, he might be talking about like microtonal music. So if you think about the distance between C and C sharp as a ratio of um, the the octave, there's sound or there's frequencies that exist between C and C sharp um, that we don't use in Western music um, because they don't sound pleasant to our ears. There's other musical cultures in the world that will organize their tonal system completely differently. Um, And I think microtonal music might be what he's referring to. Um, But also if he's saying like he's making his, he's making his own scales, then he's probably just tuning his instruments in like um, in a non-standard way. So like if you're, if you're tuning a piano now, you tune it by the A or like if the orchestra's, like uh warming up you tune it by an a which is exactly 440 hertz so if he wants to like play outside of that kind of temperament he could tune his a to like i don't know 500 hertz or something um and it would completely throw out the sound of um of everything else once you tune everything else relative to that so i don't know he might be talking about microtonal music he might be talking about just different tonalities that are available in the world yeah. it's not there's another new. quote here yeah there's no quote here from me said so if you hear a c major chord with an equal temperament you've heard it a million times before and your brain accepts it but if you hear a chord you've never heard before and you're like huh and your brain has to change shape to accept it and once it's changed shape then you've changed as a person in a tiny way <laughs> and you have a whole combination of all these free- different frequencies you're basically reconfiguring your brain and then you've changed as a person and you can go and do something else <laughs> i like that yeah i mean if you if you play a C chord, like it's three the the three notes together, it's like yeah, that's very very familiar to you. But if you change like, so it's like C, C E and G. If you change the 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 distance between the C and the E in terms of like their relative frequencies, and then you change the distance between the E and the G again, you kind of don't have a C anymore, even though that's the chord yeah. you're playing on the piano or on the guitar or whatever, it's not a C as we understand it in our kind of tonal system. But yeah, you could get into like microtonalities there or other like different tonalities that are around the world. And also interestingly about this like 12, like the 12 equal temperament system that we have is that it's it's only really like we've only really been tuning things this way since like the 18th century. Um, so if we play like 16th century music, we're playing it and hearing it in a completely different kind of, with, with different tonal centers and different kind of um, sounds than what people would have been hearing in like the 16th century to 17th century. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's something that is very rigid and it's something that a lot of composers like 
serialist composers in what the the start of the 20th century i hope that's right would have like tried to break out of and you see a lot of micro microtonal music but if he's the type of person to as soon as he gets a keyboard to like open it up <laughs> and try to mess around with the inside of it i can definitely see why he would be frustrated yeah. with like western um western temperament and tonality and stuff but it's very much not like a new idea to do it but yeah. it's it was probably a very new idea to do it within like this genre Right, we're going to talk about his most uh, probably popular period of his discography, which involves the time uh, when he released Come to Daddy. It's certainly an outlier in his discography because it sounds like a metal song. Mm. Uh, it had that famous uh, lyric in it, uh, I want your soul, I will eat your soul. He said uh, he got those uh, <laughs> uh, so lyrics from uh, a letter he got from a fan ages ago. I did the track in its original form about two and a half years ago. This was in 1997 he said this. Same day I received this mad letter that this fan uh sent me that ended with i want your soul i will eat your soul i want your soul i couldn't make head or tail of it but i thought me it sounded dming my healy <laughs> <laughs> so there you go that's where that came from he says um really the thing that made this song uh bigger than it was even though the uh bigger than anyone expected was uh, it had the artwork already which the really famous like uh kind of face shopped uh, photoshopped face onto children which you know it became his trope in, around the late 90s mm. very much what he did the window liquor one as well uh superposing his face on others um but the video really was where this all took off um and you're going to talk about that in a sec but he just says come to daddy came about while i was hanging around my house getting pissed and doing this crap death metal jingle then it got marketed and a video was made and this little idea which i had which was a joke turned into something huge it wasn't right at all <laughs> Yeah, I, I read that quote earlier and I, it wasn't right at all. And it's like, no, it wasn't. It scared the shit out of all of us, right? And some of us were children in the 1990s. So yeah, just, yeah. you know, apologies are due. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think like a big part of how we understand Aphex Twin is through, like you said, visuals and through music videos. And even though he doesn't have like a, a huge catalog of music videos, like I'm going to talk about three of them. There's like, so two of the videos uh, that he made in collaboration, well, Chris Cunningham directed and kind of created them, was the creative force behind the videos, it became like a very definitive force, not only in terms of how we think about Aphex Twin, but also in terms of how we like visualize the 1990s. Like if you, if you ask me to visualize the 1990s on a mood board, you know, the video for Window Liquor is there. 
And Chris Cunningham um, is a visual artist. His output includes short films, advertisements, art gallery commissions, installations. He also does music production um, and t- and does and touring multi-screen live performances. But he is a bit of a frustrating figure, a bit known for starting projects and leaving them or promising projects. And they never really like come to fruition for whatever reason and has like a lot of uh, incomplete work as well. So Come to Daddy is a really interesting video, I think, to look back on now. It was released in 1997 in October, filmed in the same council estate in Thamesmead that served as a location for A Clockwork Orange, the Stanley Kubrick film. It was named the number one music video of the 1990s by Pitchfork. And it was, it's also been called like the scariest slash most terrifying music video of all time. And it was, it was part of a 2003 poll by Channel 4 of like the greatest scary moments Mm. in film and television. And I couldn't get access to the poll, but I think the implication in the piece I was reading was that it was the only music video that was featured in that list and everything else was like, you know, The Shining or uh, whatever else. So Chris Cunningham started out his career working in practical effects. He worked at Ridley Scott um, early in his career and made prosthetic heads. For this reason, and probably also to do with like budgets, there's no CGI in this video. Um, mm. the, all of the, the kids' faces... Um, if you're listening to this and you don't know the video, maybe pause and go watch the video and then come back because it's it's really great and you'll understand more of what the hell I'm talking about. So yeah, they're all all the children's faces are sculpted from silicon using photos like the the Aphex Twin like face photos as a reference. Yeah. I love this video. I think precisely because it scares me. Like there's very few music videos that kind of have this effect on me, and it's obviously the the relationship between the video and the song there's nothing like but i think yeah. like violet scary children in particular as well it's part of the reason why i have started to read lord of the flies many times and never got to finish <laughs> it because i just found it really hard to there's like a there's a resistance to kind of engage with that sort of thing and but there's also this engagement with like class politics in the video as well you know it's on a council estate and I've, i was reading a paper about the video today that said it was eerily prophetic of a later hoodie horror cycle of british films exploiting associations around dangerous youth which i thought was a really interesting reading of it and how it kind of deals with ideas of like delinquency in these um in these communities and you know this is a de- nearly a decade, like a little over a decade before the idea of an ASBO was even, you know, it even happened in, in the UK. But there was this like anxiety at the time in British culture and in kind of middle class culture about like, you know, council estates and like who's looking after the children and how are the children going to grow up? And, and you see that in the interplay between the kids in the video and the old woman in the video. And I think as well, like the how the kind of malignant force is coming out of a television coming out of a music video and you know the impact of mtv on the youths and too much television on the youths and the kind of the corrupting influence of these things and this was all before we got to like things like shameless or attack the block which were dealing like a little more positively um or maybe a little more realistically with kind of communities um in in that way so i think it's a really interesting video to watch now 
a look at the class politics of it and see how little has kind of changed but also to look at it and think about like really how ahead of its time it was in those kinds of you know in in, in those kinds of ways and and I think the fact that it's using like a, a kind of a, a quote-unquote famous council estate in the video that indicates to me anyway that these kind of class politics are intentionally kind of within the text of the video so it's it's bloody scary though it is a scary video <laughs> like it's probably the best example of um the audio and visual working really well together yeah because, i mean it's h- kind of hard to imagine come to daddy without the video now mm. um because they became synonymous with each other because they work so well together and it's actually something that uh, richard d james said um you know annoyed him sometimes he was like it was almost too good mm. um so let's talk about the window liquor video then because mm. A Window Licker is an interesting one because it's a brilliant song. I think it's possibly, like for me, his single best track. Uh, let's play a bit of Window Licker first. kind of the sound design that he had the his abilities to be able to do those kind of things there was loads of uh, around this time i think his music he released some of his best music and some of the uh, best music he released uh were actually around this time was actually some of his b-sides which we'll discuss in a minute but tell me talk to me about the window like a video yeah. at the time it was an iconic one uh, it was very well it was received uh really well because it was kind of what it was it was taking the piss it was a parody but it also had a kind of epic runtime as well so mm. there was lots going on about it so talk talk to me a bit about that yeah i think broadly it was received very well but from the beginning there was a bit of a pushback in terms of like the racial politics and sexual politics which i'll talk about in a minute of, of of the video i'll say up top i love this music video um and i remember seeing it as a child and again being like come to daddy i wouldn't even watch like i'd, I'd leave the room mm. if that if that came anywhere near me but this video i did find like strangely hypnotic and it has that sort of like how are they doing that sort of element to it and even now yeah. even watching it now like the the face stuff um it works really really well it doesn't look dated at all so yeah it, it it was i think kind of conceived as not not so much a parody i think chris uh chris Cunningham said that it wasn't so much like a parody of r&b and hip-hop music videos but maybe not a pastiche either but as a, as as a way of sort of like drawing attention to the misogyny and racial politics kind of that that was being shown in hip-hop music videos or um 
R&B music videos on on television at the time. Mm. And it was a way, he said, of getting Aphex Twin played on MTV. And like listening to that song, it's like it's it's not a song that you could imagine MTV playing without a really like without, without a good reason. And this video was the reason, even though it was banned in the US, uh, not least because there was there's, I think, 127 um, profanities in the in the opening scenes of the the two guys driving around trying to find oh, yeah, women. Yeah which does go on for a really, really long time. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but yeah, they're driving around their convertible, like looking for women. They pull up, they talk to these two women and then in comes the big phallic limo and, um, and Audi jumps and does a, does a kind of a Michael Jackson meets uh, singing in the rain sort of dance and woos the women and they all go and have a dance. And it's considered by a lot of people to be like a masterpiece of the form. Um, if you're going to talk about great music videos, this is in conversation. Um, yeah, so Chris Cunningham all, also says that like he loves hip hop too much to want to do like a satire of it. So his his reasoning for doing it is still a little bit up, up, up in the air. But I think it's probably more useful to think about the intent around this video. And this is me theorizing in terms of like, hitting back at the industry as opposed to hitting back at like rappers because you know yeah. how, how the Aphex Twin face was used like in the video for Come to Daddy but also on the covers of LPs is itself like a kind of a decentering of the artist as the commodity that is being sold which is something that Aphex Twin has talked about like not wanting to be involved in like very very critical of that side of the industry but I think like with this video and uh, not not necessarily just through a 2023 lens, but in whatever lens you want to look at it, like it does have its sort of like tricky politics there, I'll say. Mm. Um, when the music video came out, The Guardian had this piece um, and I, I couldn't find the link. The, the, the link to the actual piece seems to be gone, but I saw this in a paper that was written about the written about the music video. Um so the Guardian spoke to black creatives in the music industry to ask them like what they thought of the video. And Trevor Nelson, remember him? Um, yeah. he, he said, um, what you'd expect in a video like this is maybe 20 seconds of explicit dialogue. But it went on for so long that you got the feeling that this guy is trying to make a statement. What's the agenda here? So he doesn't share loads there, but he does say like, you know, like in in that like in, in those few minutes at the beginning of the clip, the two men are like, there's there's a lot of N-words. They're both black, uh, but there's a lot of N-words and there's a lot of like just very like vapid, like we're going out, we're trying to find some women kind of conversation. Yeah. And it does go on for like quite a long time. And then the other kind of issues with it is I guess like, like just how the women's bodies in the video is uh, are, are being used, and I always love I like on the one hand love this video because I think it's technically very brilliant, and I think what it's trying to do is is like is very very clever. But on the other hand, I'm like, those are still people's bodies being used, and there's this idea of like you can't parody pornography without making pornography. Um, and I think that that is kind of like a that's something to think about in in this video. Like, are you parodying something yeah. if you're also engaging with it? Um, especially if you're going to chop off the heads of the women whose bodies are like still performing, like engaging in this kind of formativity. But like, 
I have problems with it being like a video for like a white man's music directed by a white man, also choreographed by a white man. Yeah, Brian Friedman. Yeah. He was a um, choreographer, did a lot of stuff. And um, like, he there's, actually did, there's like, you um, know, Michael raining... Jackson videos as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So his his choreography is like the the Michael Jackson kind of moment at the beginning when he first gets, gets out of the car, he kind of dances a little bit like Michael Jackson. He has like the umbrella as well. Yeah, there's like, I don't know, a white choreographer... He's he's obviously being given a brief for this, and it's like make it look like the rap videos, and that's that's fair enough. But um, there's something of agency in this that I just I, I I do feel a little bit strange about. But I also love the video, so it's I don't know. It's it's very like it gives you it's a its very time like and it's oh I think it's ahead of its time in terms of what it's actually dealing with. I mean, I mean the idea is like, the idea yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it was way ahead of its time. And I think it, it critiques the kind of masculinity that you see in rap music and R&B very well. Um, but it's sort of, maybe the way it's critiquing it is sometimes maybe just engaging with some of the problematic elements of it just from like a white perspective but i think it is it is critiquing good things but maybe it's not always carrying out that critique in like the best way but at the same time art doesn't always have to do that either so i want to be clear about that but i mean yeah i think i've always had a bit of an issue with the video and i've never really been able to put my finger on it but there was this really good post i read it was either a newsletter or a blog this week that clicked it clicked with me and it was about the woman who this is gonna it's gonna sound very off topic but i'll bring it back it was about the actress in shallow hal who played the fat woman in shallow hal who wasn't gwyneth paltrow and how her body was shot in in that um in that movie the fact that she was like a real woman in that movie and i read it and it was a really illuminating piece and i thought it was really excellent and then I was kind of thinking about the women in this music video and how it's still their bodies um, and you're yeah. still using women's bodies to make this point. Yeah, I don't know. It's complicated, but Yeah, and I sent are, you a picture you know? there, funny enough, um, the non-Photoshop version of the uh, cover was used as one of the promos of the actual yes. woman uh, is out there as a picture. So, mm. you know, she is she can be identified as well. So, uh, yeah far beyond like it is it, there is an identity attached to that which you can people can see you know so yeah but also just, what does a woman in a white bikini standing in a suggestive pose have to do with this song yeah whether, yeah. whether she's I mean, being subverted or not like yeah that's just me being a feminist killjoy but i think <laughs> but i think it's a really interesting video to have these conversations around and that's why i like it um yeah i think it's a it's an interesting way to look at like how you can definitely be ahead of the times when it comes to like critiquing certain elements of like R&B and rap culture in music videos, but also you're not immune from making those same kinds of um, issues like kind of, you know, prominent in your own yeah. work. And I think that's interesting. I just think that's, that's, Do you remember- that's interesting. <laughs> The Roots video for what we do at the time, it was kind of a parody of rap videos uh, or what they do. And it was like there was a it's it's kind of a typical video with like uh, girls in the background and stuff like that, except for 
there's a ver I don't know if it's on all of them, but there's a version of it that has here's the cost of uh, the various things or that people have spent money on, you know, that kind of way. So it's like it's trying to show you how fake it all is when okay. people make these videos at the time. Uh, big willyisms, stuff like that. It's mm. like all of these things in it that are there that uh you know they've essentially made a rap video that sound that looks like all the other ones that were around at the time but they actually um is trying to send it up but they still made one as well yeah you know? yeah so, and that's that's the yeah that's what i'm trying to get at it's like critiquing something by doing it i suppose yeah and that's that's just you know that's a, that's a problem that like comedians have it like artists have it everybody has that because you can never escape yeah. your own you know bubble that you live in and that your creative influences so if if you're a white man and you want to make a parody of hip-hop culture like yeah that's going to come with a lot of racial politics that i don't know may maybe in the late 1990s you're not quite equipped to deal with mm. yet maybe you haven't had those conversations but i think like as as a video it, it, it's a marvel you know um yeah. I, it's it's weirdly beautiful um, to look at. I think the scenes where they're in the in the uh, in the limousine are like it's it's just so like engaging and and I think it's supposed to make men feel uncomfortable. I think that like Chris Cunningham kind of talked about yeah. the idea that like you have these beautiful bodies like writhing around and you know like worshiping this white man in this white limousine and. Um, and then you, you have this, you know, like this shock factor of like, oh, but their faces aren't beautiful. Their faces are not only a man's face, but the, like a kind of a warped and scary version of of a man's face. And that ho hopefully that like the intention, I think, is that hopefully you will you would think twice about objectifying women in this way in the future. Like that said, there's also a lot of shots of those women's bodies where the head is just not like visible, yeah, visible yeah, at yeah. all but that's so, the, so, so, that's so the payoff in the video you have to you, it, it waits until it reveals that to you and mm -hmm. you're like, oh that's the whole like yeah. shock of it all you know? yeah yeah uh no but I, I mean also after the reveal there's also a lot of shots of their bodies without okay, without yeah, the yeah, face right. but may, maybe the maybe the label were like give us something here guys <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> we, we we need yeah. something to sell to mtv but nonetheless like and i think not not in spite of but because of all these conversations i think it is a it is a a very like worthy conversation to have around it but also like it's one of the greatest music videos of all time i think it's one of the great songs of all time anyway it's I, just, and i love this song. it's totally unique to his own even though it has all the things that he does really well um the kind of skittering um uh, sound design and all that kind of stuff but it's so unique and so weird and the the kind of the way that it uses uh the kind of ooh as a, as yeah. a kind of a bass thing is so really really cool and i never get sick of it and funny enough around that time like the b-side for window liquor is a song called nanu which was really really beautiful and i remember i actually bought the cd for window liquor because i think it actually had the video on it as well mm. um and i remember putting this on and they're hearing this and going god it's absolutely beautiful here a bit of nanu from the b-side
The same is also true for the Come to Daddy release, which was actually like a long EP. There's a track on it, which is uh, Skrillex's favorite song of all time. It is Flim. Also on that release was a song called Bucephalus Bouncing Ball, uh, very much leaning into the sound design, basically sounding like exactly like that, a bouncing ball uh, in terms of percussion and sound. Now, it, 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 between this period, I think things got out of hand a little bit for uh, Aphex Twin. His face was everywhere, and literally his face was everywhere. It's in the videos. It's uh, all over the artwork. It's something that he would use uh, throughout his entire career when he went to do live shows and stuff as well. Uh, first of all, you know, I mean, we talked about those videos there. It was also in the Donkey Rhubarb video where there's uh, adult dancing teddy bears wearing Aphex Twin masks. The Aphex uh, face became quite a trope at the time. It was kind of used everywhere. It was used in all the visuals and stuff like that. The digital artist Weirdcore does a lot of Aphex Twins visuals and still to this day. And you can uh, see a lot of the use and manipulation of that, um, of the face in a live context. Because essentially what happens is they use it as a filter and they put that face on people's people dancing in the crowd and then it becomes this whole live experience where you're watching the screens of people dancing in front of you with an Aphex twin face and so that that kind of grinning face is is has become quite iconic it's a good and, way to uh, get so, around anonymity issues if you want to record yeah. those live shows as well <laughs> absolutely yes yeah <laughs> uh, an easter egg uh, involving the face on the window liquor tree track uh, ep there is a song that's uh, more commonly called equation because essentially is an equation. If you look at the spectrogram or spectrogram of the song in a audio software, you will see the face of Richard D. James in the spectrogram. You, if you, I just sent you a link there, Andrea, in the chat to a video. You go to five minutes and thirty seconds in that video, you will literally see his face pop up uh, as the song is uh, winding down. So really interestingly, it's the most at 5.30, you'll see his face. It's the most replayed part of the video. You know, you can see see that on uh, YouTube now. Um, 
Oh, is that him there scrolling past? Yeah, that's him. <laughs> that's cool. That's funny. So it's just something that he, he, an Easter egg he put in the spectrogram. I don't even know how you figure that out. How do you figure that one out? Like, I, I don't uh, know. But that's, really interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, that's someone who doesn't want to engage with equal temperament there. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so um, in 2001, he released an album called Drugs, the 30-track double album. And that was really the album that brought the Venn diagram of his experimental Aphex Acid, Drill and Bass and Ambient together uh, because it was essentially two sides mm-hmm. of that. That's what you heard most. There was a lot of hardcore break, experimentalism, Drill and Bass, Acid Synths, manipulated and plucked piano pieces, uh, some horror kind of ambient tracks and silly interludes. Um, most noticeably, okay, let's play two different sides of that. Let's play the more frantic uh, version. This is a uh, cock version ten. Come on, you cunt! Let's have some apex acid. That absolutely is some Aphex Acid. Here's uh, 54, Simru beats the, uh, a lot of Welsh uh, references in titles on drugs. So, yeah, that's two, there's a lot of this kind of music on drugs, which, uh, oh, Quinn's there, you have drugs on vinyl. You. It is. Um, is why it's twice as wide oh. as it is up you see wow okay mad That's like normal lp there okay it's yeah, not yeah, mine it's, it's harry's double, but it's really cool uh back to the album uh drugs uh which i saw um the title and how it's uh pronounced i always called it drugs i'd never thought about it this way it was in an interview i read today that was said is it drugs or drug use it was like mm. drug use oh yeah never saw that before Right, but anyway, this was what was re-released in 2001 as I played those two versions, which are more of the uh, experimental drill and bass kind of stuff. But um, this release contains his probably his most iconic and popular track beyond uh, Come to Daddy and Window Licker. It is a little ambient piano kind of piece called Avril 14th, which basically blew up on Spotify. So Avril 14th is one of uh, the most popular songs from Aphex Twin uh, that's on Spotify, for example. Uh, 158 million uh, listens that song has Very compared pretty. to anything else he has. Far and above uh, above that, even on that album itself, if you click in and have a look at the numbers on the album. 
yeah. there is tracks there that have just over half a million um and a lot of them would have one and a half two and a half three and a half million uh but yeah 158 million there's a lot of uh, listens happening there Great. another example i watched of four lines for the first time in like a, a a decade recently and forgot that it was used at the end of that movie oh, um yeah. and it was used really well at the end of it very good uh here's another song which i cannot pronounce uh jin wake tech Kind of sounds like that player piano kind of stuff um the maybe uh techniques he's using there are very interesting uh, but yeah they were that kind of defined that album i think overall that album isn't as i remember even at the time i was like i really wanted to love it mm. because it was my first like new apex tune release since i got into apex twin i was like oh i listened to this it was so dense it's quite a difficult listen there's a lot of time and i think he later said one of the reasons why it was released because he lost his MP3 player, which had 292 unreleased tracks of it on his of his and 83 unreleased Square Pusher tracks, uh, pile of his on Warp Records as well. Uh, so I thought I would release a chunk of them before people uh, basically put them out before I did. And um, so 30 songs when released on as Drucks. And at the time, there was a lot of talk that like this would be his last album for Warp. Which turned out not to be true, but it was a long time before he did actually mm. release, uh, 13 years to be exact. Uh, but in between, he wasn't uh, exactly resting on his laurels either. In 2003, he had a great compilation called 26 Mixes for Cash, um, a compilation of his remix work featuring uh, like his remixes of Philip Glass, David Bowie, Jesus Jones, Seafield, Nine Inch Nails, Saint Etienne. And then this great, uh, weird little... Um, german um german uh rap song that he turned into this really dark weird industrial sludgy thing from die fantastischen wir so yeah that was uh, one of the things that he released around that time uh, he uh, a member famously at the time talking about how uh, a lot of his remixes didn't really feature any of the original tracks if he didn't like the song. So he would just like, so apparently the Lemonheads uh, remix that he made for them, uh, just, uh, this is what he said about it. Uh, when he was commissioned to remix the uh, rock band, the Lemonheads, he completely forgot to do it. Uh, but when the courier came for the tape, he just had nothing to give him. So he just, whatever he had at the time, he gave it to him. Um, so he either didn't listen to the original or couldn't be bothered to do the track because it was so shit, he says. <laughs> Instead, he grabbed an old track, handed it over, and was paid four grand for his work. Strangely, they never released it, uh, he told Loaded at the time. Um, they should have been honored, I reckon. Uh, it would have sounded better than any rubber song they wrote, he said. Jesus Christ. Um, so that's what that's where that title comes from. Uh, 26 mixes for cash. He said he did it for, for the money. And I think a lot of his live shows in the early days were that as well. I mentioned at the start of the show, um, I uh, shook his hand once. And that was at a gig in uh, the Button Factory. He played uh, as part of Brain Dance. So Brain Dance was uh, a, 
the Brain Dance Coincidence is a compilation album of uh, Reflex Records, which is one of the other strands of things that he did around that time. Yeah, he co-founded a record label, uh, and a lot of that kind of remix stuff and things came out on that record. Uh, it was started in nineteen ninety one by himself and Grant Wilson Claridge uh, in Cornwall. Later moved to Dublin or London uh, and closed in twenty fourteen. Uh, he released albums from Reflex released albums from Square Pusher, Dark Angelo, Music. Chimero, Bogdan Rosinski, Baby Four, DMX Crew. A lot of that stuff you can hear on it um, is on the Brain Dance Coincidence um, compilation, something I go back to an awful lot. Released in 2001, I think I remember that year. I was trying to find it. Uh, myself and my pal went to see um, the Brain Dance gig and Apex Twin played. And I remember, like, you know, the, the, uh, DJ uh, booth, my my, we were just like young lads, really, you know, like mm. we had just turned like we were twenty, and we were like, oh my god, Apex Twin is here, and my pal was like, I went under and and I shook his hand, like he got under the table and said hello, <laughs> like shook his hand, and I was like, you do it, I was like, all right, cool, and then went and did it as well, and like shook Aww, his hand, it's so weird, that's so sweet, <laughs> yeah. So I remember that, but I was trying to find any, um, I was trying to Google and see if there was anything there that actually. Uh, corroborated the the, the that uh, actual experience i had can't find anything about the gig at all so anyway maybe i made it up maybe, maybe i lucid dreamed dream. it maybe <laughs> <laughs> so uh in the latter part of his career getting up to present day 2014 he released the syro album i think for me this is an album that kind of coagulated a lot of the later stuff it's very much like he never released albums as albums he just released albums as a collection of tracks and he has said that a lot. He says, it's my pop album, or as poppy as it's going to get. There's nothing pop about this at all. No. The uh, Q Magazine 2014 says, it is nonetheless a heavy trip, a whirlwind tour of James' inscrutable brain and an unpredictable maze of things that shouldn't make sense together and yet do. Blaring rave bass lines, poignant electro chords, splintered jazz fusion riffs, meditative piano, scorching acid splurges, elaborate breakbeat hieroglyphs, abrasive industrial clatter, and sheer noise terror. If you're an Apex Twin fan, it's both familiar and unfathomably strange. A transmission in a language only one man understands, and even he's not sure. So he said, the tracks on the album are mostly tracks remind me of stuff I've done, nothing really new. I've been producing weirder or newer sounding stuff in music lately. I wanted this album to be accessible as possible. It's not one of my favorites, I have to say, Syro. It's I find it quite hard going. Uh, I think it, it he kind of has dispensed their one thing he always had was an element of humor in his music mm. there's none of that in this uh on Syro really it's very much like look at the track list and, and you've got a lot of things that are just they look like archive uh, automatically uh, generated uh, song titles as well here's product 29 from that
good music to look at uh, cats uh, chilling to. That is um, that is from Syro. Uh, two tracks from it. Yeah, not my favorite, as I said, but you know it is probably others. Um, it came out because he finished making a studio in Scotland where he now lives uh, that he'd been building for about three years. It took so long. I had this engineer help me wire all the patch bays together, and he was doing it for about three months every day. And then he realized he was doing it all wrong and had to start again. That was pretty brutal. So it's kind of like, okay, I've done that now. That's the end of an era. But then I realized I actually like making studios more than making music because I like the possibilities of what you can do. I make these setups that will achieve some sort of purpose. So the way they've wired it together becomes the track in itself. So very much like now interested in process. Uh, so that was Cyber 2014. Uh, after that came Cheetah, the EP in 2016, and the Collapse EP 2019. Bring us up right to the present day, which uh, a brand new, most recent release called Black Box Life Recorder 21F in a Room 7 F760. Do you think he purposely alienates people? <laughs> That's mm, a yeah, genuine I so. question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's an attempt to do that, but mm. he certainly is. But it, it it does contain the artwork, does contain the uh, in, infamous A symbol, a mm. uh, kind of digitally um, put into the side of a building by Weird Core. I think the best track he's released in a long time is it features on this, and it's called In a Room 7 F76, uh, 760. Let's have a listen to that. Yeah, so that's some of the latest music from Apex Tim, which came out uh, just a few weeks ago on July 28th. Uh, and I think he do- often does a lot of things to mark around his birthday. He's playing Field Day in London this weekend. Um, so still out there playing tunes and playing uh, live shows. A lot of the shows are actually composites of uh, like DJ sets, really. He's played a lot of the Irish act Lacquer over the years. In his DJ set, he played uh, Forbidden Fruit in 2010 and... Uh, 2010 and 2017, I believe. So he's played both. But there's a number of things I'd like to run by you now because these are myths which uh, apparently did or did not happen that uh, help um, bring the enigmatic Aphex Twin character to life in many ways. Uh, one of the things that he uh, apparently happened uh, is that he, uh, in the early days in 1994, he was invited to play a club uh, in London called Disobey. And since he was a regular um, he figured he'd take them up in the offer, and though he couldn't really play any records, then he, he decided instead of spinning wax, he played some sandpaper. So this is something he said. Uh, uh, things got more interesting when he performed the same set in New York City at a blast first showcase and added a food mixer to the setup. I just mixed some sandpaper together for a bit and then uh, played a food mixer and threw it at someone. <laughs> I hit the bloke in the head and thought I would get sued for it, but he just wanted me to sign it afterwards. He said, I would keep this food mixer forever. So it sounds like a joke. It probably is a joke. Um, Do you think he purposely intru- alienates people? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Mm. Uh, he uh, owns a tank. Is also, was he paid one that- for that gig? <laughs> 
I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Uh, he owns a tank. Uh, well, it is sort of true. It's it's not a myth. Uh, he does own. It's not exactly a tank, but he did own something similar: an armored scout car, Daimler Ferret Mark III armored scout car. Uh, it was armed with a mounted machine gun and welded steel body. Jesus. And easy to see how it was confused for a tank, but he has told reporters that he owned a tank for many years, but there was a picture of it. Um, so I'm looking at photos. That of is something he a, apps, a model of or, it here. And yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. Larger than an ice cream truck. It's a big toy, according <laughs> to James. And it's harder to control than a mixing board in the studio. He owns this in Scotland? I don't think he owns it anymore, okay. um, but it's something he owned in the 90s, apparently. Uh, the other thing that he, he is said to have owned was a bank. Um, he did apparently uh, inhabit a former branch of HSBC in South London. So he bought a now demolished former bank in Elephant and Castle in London, opposite Ministry of Sound, sometime around the recording of the Come to Daddy EP and figured that its four foot thick walls would be good sound dampeners as well as a natural deterrent for burglars. Hmm. Um, he also felt that he wanted the karma of living in a place where money comes in all the time, which doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all. Still, telling people that he lives in a bank vault Not has been a AIB. long time. Yeah, Hi-o. long time. Topical. Woo! Woo! Bank of Ireland, wasn't it? Uh, oh, well. <laughs> we could retake that, but I wouldn't be <laughs> <feel> honest. <honest. laughs> Where's your soundboard? Where's your... <laughs> <laughs> got some got some sandpaper yeah uh okay uh yeah so apparently it is uh it is true he did live in a uh on the in a bank a, a demolished now demolished uh but a bank it was a bank so he did live there apparently um his name apex twid do you know where that comes from no apparently it came from uh well quite a personal thing and it's i i kind of tend to believe this one because it's not really the kind of thing you uh, pretend. I mean, maybe it is because it's Richard D. James. Was, was he in a duo called Aphex? Didn't you say that earlier? Yeah, but he, the Aphex one was added later. But he says the reason for that was because um, he had a brother, a three years older, who was stillborn called Richard. And his mother has the, the girl boy EP. The actual cover is of a grave of a of somebody called Richard James. And he says, my mom was so upset about it when he died that she just kept his name on but forgot about him, thinking the next boy I have, I'll call him Richard, uh, he said in a 1996 interview. So I sort of took his place as if he didn't exist. So that's why I called him myself Aphex Twin. Uh, Yeah, the photo purporting to be his brother's gravestone, uh, allegedly taken at an unknown location in Canada, was used as a cover for Girl Boy EP. But yeah. It's either very macabre or or, or very true, um, but hard to know either way. But he has I said won't this a lot. On it in yeah. case it's true. That's something that has been repeated a lot, right up to even uh, the twenty fourteen um, uh, articles that I read as well. One of the other things that you may have seen pop up in the last few years around the time of Syro was uh, Aphex Twin's son put music on Bandcamp at the age of six, he says. Uh, yeah, when he was doing um, interviews for Syro, he said his son, who was six, uh, already made an album on Renoise, which is a digital audio workstation, and published it on Bandcamp. Uh, he was five when he did most of it all, and I never showed him a thing. He worked it all out himself. Mind-boggling. Uh, he says, uh, their "Very yeah." So- uh, North posted this while playing games on my phone from Kim Kardashian yeah. when she posted yeah. the. <laughs> <laughs> their music uh, is so weird. Selfie. He says of his kids' music. I'm thinking, oh my god, what have I done to them? I'll be in the car playing totally brutal avant-garde noise music at the loudest volume. I'll just be looking out the window. I think three times I said, "Can you turn it down a bit?" In their lives, 
Uh, the other in, around performance in the early days, he performed in a Wendy house. There is a picture of this, um, not a myth, but a functional cog in his great mythology. This is from a fact uh, article about myths of uh, about Apex Men. Despite the various accounts floating around the online of his Wendy house shows of 97, 98, in which he was wheeled on stage at a tiny children's playhouse, only one image exists of the setup, and even that looks photoshopped. <laughs> I'm looking Pretend at the image still now, it's about, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Attendees still talk about the Richards uh, Petergeddon-esque spectacle. One fan recalls seeing him crouched in a plastic house wearing a mask of his own face, while others, namely a user called Tompty, speculate out of how much it would sell for today. I heard it went for like 15 grand uh, on eBay, says joking. Um, yeah, so he did, like, whether he, he did it to be his mischievous self or not, it's hard to know. Um, he, he did fib a lot in interviews uh, he said that jim thurwell who's uh, in a band called fetus wanted uh, threatened to kill him uh, he said he has a friend that he talks to dogs he once fell asleep standing in an airport um <laughs> uh he wants he was trying to make a bed to shop and down using hydraulics uh, for when he would get bored as a kid uh, he used to ride home from school on the back of his pet dog apparently but perhaps the most maddest claim of all was that for some inexplicable reason, he decided to ch- send a chunk of his hair to his dad. As easy as it is to shrug this one off, he has noted his bent for hair posting on various separate occasions. In an enemy interview in 1995, he meant his chopping his beard hair off and attempted to grow it on his toes instead. And then in 1996, he claimed the first hundred copies of the Richard D. James album would come with strands of his greasy ponytail. At first, I wanted to sell a piece of my beard, but at that, that very last moment, I realized I'd already sent my beard, he says. Um, and apparently he used to work in a coal mine in episode four of John Peel's Sound of the Suburbs series. First broadcast, pro- Broadcast on Channel 4 in 1999 and dug up to the delight of uh, Richard D. James Diggers everywhere in 2015. FX Twin and fellow Cornish musician Luke Vibert visit some local landmarks. Squatting in the circular recesses of the mythologized uh, Ganap Pit Amphitheater, uh, James discusses watching his dad work semi-naked in an overheated coal mine as a kid. I did a bit of work in a mine when I was about 17. That's where I got my money to buy my first equipment, he says. You can sort of see a, a myth-building pathology bouncing around his vision in the clip. So, yeah, apparently so. Who knows? But, like, he says a lot of these things. Um, and uh, one thing that is true that you may have heard, he swung a p- piano in the Barbican for an installation. Actually sounds really interesting. In 2012... Um, uh, it was 2014 or 2012, I think he did it. Yeah, he said he wrote, he wrote this piece of music for his wife on a piano and he did this uh, installation thing in the Barbican with a remote orchestra. And it basically, the song was made on a controlled piano, uh, which was swung from the roof at the gig and it has a mat, which led to a massive Doppler effect. It is pretty mental. There's a bad camera phone version of it on YouTube, but in the flesh, it's amazing. You listen to this piano swinging, you almost see all the notes stretching out, so it'll hit you at different times. I never knew if it was going to work or not, and everyone was like, what the fuck is he swinging a piano for? (laughs) But when we actually got it going, we were just like, fucking hell, it's so extreme. My friends were like, are the strings stretching? The pitch deviation is that big. It sounds like an actual frame is contorting. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, But yeah, like I said, the silliness was very evident in his uh, music throughout. He had a lot of silliness. Uh, I mean, there's the Milkman, uh, the silly lyrics from Milkman, uh, To Cure a Weakling Child, for example. Just a a very strange song from the Richard D. James album.
And then there's also Funny Little Man as well. As the years progress, you kind of uh, dispense with a lot of that. One of the sweetest one actually is on drugs. The Lorna Derrick uh, interlude, which is in his parents wishing him uh, a happy birthday on his 28th birthday. Happy birthday, dear Richard. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> happy birthday, my little son. My little 28-year-old son. Well, you were born by now because you were born about 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, well, Barbara, you'll have a lovely day. I hope your card came. That's it. So, yeah, that's a, a lot of uh, the effects and stuff. Um, you want to mention um, something we left out? Yeah, the Circlon 3 music video. Um, yeah, the Irish connection. Yeah, of course, we're Irish people. We have to do the Irish connection. Um, yeah, first video released since Window Liquor, I saw, written somewhere, which I found hard to believe but apparently it is oh, uh, uh yeah. directed by a 12 year old dublin fan ryan wire uh w-y-e-r uh, who was 12 at the time um once again utilizes the apex twin face in the form of masks that kind of look like they're printed off on a home computer so richard james uh, apparently found him on youtube where he liked his video game like commentary videos and like just playing video mm. game videos and also reviews of Aphex Twin albums and songs um, that he was putting up on on YouTube and I think some of his own music as well um, and it features Wire's family and friends dancing in their estate in Rush County Dublin just kind of dancing around and like a few you know shots like outside the car um using the kind of like default video effects that you'd find on like any pc it's really charming it's a really lovely video it's a really really charming video um young ryan is the pinned comment on the video on youtube where he writes thanks guys for all the amazing comments i appreciate it richard d james and warp have made my dreams come true making this video i had a blast <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is it's it's very very sweet um yeah yeah, and we looked this up today, and he's still uh, now what he's like twenty one now, and yeah. he seems to be still making doing covers and making music uh, covers on YouTube, which you can find as well. So yeah, yeah Ryan Wire is it Wire? It's time to just briefly dip into the side projects because he had a lot of side projects. Uh, I won't play a lot of music from this because there's literally too many of them. But some of the names he used over the years include uh, Bradley Strider, Blue Calix. Uh, Caustic Window, Gak, Phonic Boy on Dope, Gak. Polygon Window, Power Pill. Um, you, I actually didn't realize till today that this this song was actually Richard D. James. I've always seen it listed, but I thought it was just a joke or like a mis a misname. Uh, but this uh, Power Pill, uh, he did a version of Pac Man uh, in 1992, I think. Let's have a listen to this. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. 
uh, annoying, I would say. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't know at the time that was actually him. Uh, apparently it is him. So yeah, yeah, there was a whole EP released at the time. Other names, Q, Q Chastic, Ricardo Jamiro, uh, Richard D. James itself, um, Smogeface, The Tuss, uh, the Dice Man. In 2014, around 2014, he also released a lot of tracks on SoundCloud um, under uh, kind of a randomly generated username, uh, which I think are still up there. Uh, there's tracks like 18 with my family, Short Forgotten Product. Uh, there's loads and loads and loads of tracks up there that uh, probably came from... Now, he is said to be very prolific in terms of music making, so I'm sure... Uh, there's probably a huge bank of stuff that he's never released that we'll probably never hear. But every now and again, that was 2015, he was just uploading music to SoundCloud. And every now and again, it happens that you hear of this. Um, so, yeah. And I mentioned earlier on the Braindance compilation as well. There was also, uh, so that was released on Reflex. That's a, a, a release I love. I think there's some great tracks on that. Um, worth listening to the weird uh, Psylob Rewind, uh, Darkangelo. Uh, Diagram uh, 7, which I love. A uh, big fan of that track. And also, he did make an album with Mike Paradinas, aka Music, uh, called Expert Knob Twiddlers uh, for Mike and Rich. Probably more noticeable for the cover, which was a piss take a little bit of the um, uh, Connect 4 game. Um, I'm going to send you this. Have you seen this before? Don't think so. Okay, I'm putting this in the chat. Um, so yeah, it's like the cover of a, a board game of Connect Four, and except for it's called Expert Knob. Yeah, Twitters, I think so. I think you sent me this before, actually. <laughs> yeah, so probably better than most of the music on it. But anyway, that's what the, uh, he did. But the other thing I wanted to just briefly touch on was uh, between um, 2001 and uh, the Syro album. He did actually release a number of releases under the just the term Aphex, AFX, um, the Analog series. So this was a series of 12-inch um, records. There was actually 11 in total released in 2005. Um, uh, and it marked kind of his return to making music just with analog equipment um, following just, you know, using computers. And I think it's there's some really great stuff on this. And what I like about it is its simplicity, which is very rare for um, Richard D. James and AFX Twin. Uh, a few favorites of mine on across that collection. There's a song called Where's Your Girlfriend? Crying, uh, sorry, that's uh, Where's Your Girlfriend? <laughs> a song from uh, the Analog She's series. Crying. Here She's is, crying. Uh, yeah, here is a track called Crying in Your Face.
So much more simpler kind of music than he made uh, under his own name. That was passwordsteal.lynch.d or whatever, which is actually ldpinch.d, which is a name of a virus. Um, so a lot of the some of the tracks on that were named after viruses. So yeah, that's something I uh, really enjoyed that uh, Analord series. The Tuss as well has some good stuff. He also had a name called. Uh, he also used the Dice Man at some points as well. So there's still so much music. I've actually listened to as much as I possibly could in the last few days from uh, Apex Twin. And it's been a while. Um, I thought it was nice to mark um, kind of, I've been listening to him a long time and uh, hadn't gone back to a lot of those albums for a while. So I think if you were, if I was to pick my favorites, I probably would go with Selected Ambient Works Volume 1 and Volume 2. And then there's some great stuff in between. Um, I, I love that Nanu stuff and uh, Window Licker and Come to Daddy and stuff like that. Um, and he also clearly had a, a, a gift for melody, even though he didn't like to use it in the same way that everyone else did. And uh, I think he, interestingly, remains active, still doing those live shows, still pushing himself. Uh, but I think for me, a lot of the music in the later years, uh, with the exception of a couple of the new ones and uh, Cyro, uh, probably overall isn't great for me uh, I think he kind of settled into a groove in a lot of ways I would love to hear him I'm sure he has loads of other music out there and loads of other things that I'd love to hear him uh, release at some point and maybe we will get that but for now uh, that's kind of a primer of of Apex Twin Richard D. James um, does that Where should make sense start? I think you should just start to start and, and give it all a listen yeah. because I think it starts kind of fairly accessible and then you, as you move through it, you kind of get more used to the uh, experimentalism of it. So as I said, yeah. I have three playlists I'm going to share with Patreon. If you want to sign up to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Niler9. And you have access to our Discord as well as uh, tickets and uh, playlists and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so I have one playlist called Ambient, one called Dance, and one called uh, Experimental. So you can, you'll get those if you sign up to Patreon as well. So that's uh, an added extra for Patreon members. But that's, that is everything about our godfather of IDM, <laughs> Mozart of Ambient, uh, the producer from Cornwall who was born in Limerick. Um, yeah, if, Thank great. you very much, Niall. It was a pleasure. It was actually a great. There's a great resource called lanerchronicle.wordpress.com, which features a lot of the interviews and uh, press clippings from the 90s. You can go deep on that and really uh, learn a lot about uh, Richard D. James from that. I would recommend it. If you are interested in Apex, obviously there's the the Reddit, the uh, We Are The Music Makers Forum. There's loads of those places. Like I said, they've been around for a long, long time. Um, and still very active and people are still figuring out you know what it all means and where the music comes from and on any given day he could be releasing uh music under uh, a pseudonym or a different name and you just never know uh what's coming next so but i think it's pretty obvious now there's a there's a, a new ep to listen to as well so uh, I would recommend digging into that. Uh, but yeah, start to start and go chronologically. The playlists, I'm sure, are that way because I listen to everything from start to finish. So I kind of decided not to, to like mess around with it too much. And uh, yeah, I think you'll find plenty if you're interested. If you listen this far, you definitely uh, want to hear more. So for yeah, sure. <laughs> so that's it from us this week, I think. Um, yep. We had 
a load of people listening last week who had never listened to the show. I uh, appreciate that. Thanks for checking in and saying hello. Loads of people who uh, just responded on Insta or whatever uh, wanted to hear about uh, all together now and the uh, many feedback people who had feedback. Uh, and thank you all for that. Um, I think it was probably 250 people overall who gave us feedback on the festival. Um, I'm going to another festival this weekend called Another Love Story. As you know, one of your faves, you were there last year, uh, Lumo's playing there, and it still looks like it's going to rain on Friday, but everything else looks fine, so you it's got your boots, Get on your boots, as uh, as famous Irish man uh, once said. Uh, okay, uh, that's Aphex Twin. Yeah, sign up to Patreon if you want uh, the full access to the playlists and everything else, and uh, thank you all for listening to Aphex Twin, and thank you, um, Andrea, for being ever patient with my um i think i played a lot of songs there so no yeah it was lovely i enjoyed most of them yeah and if there's an artist you want to hear us uh talk about in discussion in a deeper discussion do let us know podcast.909.com um is the best place to get both of us at once Um, good to do that i think we might do a fortet one soon actually that would be a fun one yeah um, i'm cooking up a newsletter on carsey headrest at the minute so maybe when i put that out we can talk about carsey headrest cooking up a newsletter yeah okay great yeah. well i mean i'm, I'm trimming it down <laughs> My newsletter is andrea-cleary.ghost.io, but I think I have it now where if you just type in andreacleary.com, you'll arrive. Maybe you'll test that for me now. Thank you. And I'll count this as a hit on my on my blog. It works. Hey, okay. Andreacleary.com. Um, and you'll find my newsletter there. Um, yeah, I don't know when the next one will be out. I'm a bit Great. sporadic, but it'll be a long any, one any radio or upcoming features to report oh you can listen to me on Orti arena you can listen to the playback of it i reviewed the netflix documentary um ladies first a, a, a story of women in hip-hop um yeah. which is quite good um i'd recommend watching it it's not um it's I had a few problems with it, um, mostly just to do with like a, a non-linear storytelling thing. But there's some great interviews uh, from some like really, really iconic um, women in hip hop. And it's four episodes, each 45 minutes long. And you can listen to my full review of it with Sean on Arena if you go to, yeah. I don't know, orti.ie, somewhere like that. Um, you can find it. You know how to use Google listener, don't you? Um, so, yeah. There's a, uh, just that, I think. Everything else is PhD work, I'm afraid. Okay. Well, that's it. We're nearly getting closer to your favorite time of year. Um, not with all these deadlines autumn. coming up. It's not, but yes, we are. We are. We're getting close. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and we have Lumo on uh, August 26th. Is it 26th next Saturday? August 26th. Yeah, I believe so. Okay. Best of luck cool. to Spain on so Sunday. So come and have a dance. Up the girls. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back uh, next week. Bye. Bye.